what quite often happens in Australian real estate is Australian real estate, real estate looks tired after 25, 30 years in Australia. So what you are fundamentally holding is a contingent liability of the concept of diminishing marginal returns, i.e. the cost to keep, update, recreate, improve that property is going to erode your overall performance of your asset and affect your level of income into the future, into the now, or into retirement. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, a code cracker. We're going to dig into my number one lesson when it comes to being a property investor. What type of property investor do you want to be? I'm going to help you answer that particular question, that riveting question in this episode. Welcome aboard, you crazy urban property investors. You know the rules. Play the show in double speed. Get your life back. And of course, all the episodes I've done are lessons on real estate. So feel free to dart about, listen to some past episodes if you want some tips and strategies on how to get ahead inside of real estate. Hey, you're probably probably noticing the old neon signs back in action. Yes, I tinkered with it. I am now a home electrician and I am glowing, which is great news. If you're watching on YouTube, the sign is back, which distorts my ugly mug. Yes, it is designed so you do not look at my bald head. Good news for me, good news for you. What type of investor do you want to be? It's a big question and a question I've spent a large part of my life exploring. I've been a buffet smorgasbord investor, if you like, over the years. I've done a few different strategies, that is for sure. I've done all sorts of types of property investment from subdivisions to strata subdivisions to buying duplexes to buying and holding real estate to doing off the plan, building things. I've done it all. Uh, And I tell you what, I've learned some things along the way which I want to share with you today. And of course, today I have an investment philosophy, if you like, that you want to buy and hold real estate. Uh, Once you've achieved a certain level of real estate that you can buy and hold, you can accelerate its cash flow by doing things like short stay or tinkering with how the properties are rented. And of course, if you've got equity and you can't borrow anymore, what you can then go and do, if you can just tap a little bit of that equity, is go into a joint venture place and become an armchair investor. So today, if you would describe, ask me how to describe myself as an investor, I would say I am a trifecta investor. Yes, I invest in buy and hold real estate. I invest in cash flow dividend real estate and I do that through short stay and I am also a joint venture investor. I tackle 
properties where I can add value to the real estate through joint ventures. And of course, I've got a few joint ventures that I'm involved in at the moment and a good spread of money uh, and time invested into those joint ventures, which are uh, adds to my overall wealth position. Now, we go to work, exchange our time for money. Uh, We are meant to then exchange that money for assets and for those assets to create more assets and more dividends. That's the process we undertake as a property investor. However, when I started out as a property investor, I didn't quite understand all this. And as such, my first investment was a bit of a dud. I got better after that, but I also have learned along the way what to avoid when it comes to buy and hold investing, what to uh, tackle when it comes to buy and hold investing. And this is just really my version of that conversation, how to be a great buy and hold investor to uh, eventually get to a place where you can do other more expansive things like the property trifecta. So what kind of investor do you want to be? And I think the answer to that question is actually an investor for your retirement. You want to be someone who chooses assets not for the 25-year-old version of yourself, not for the 30 or 40 year old version of yourself, but you want to choose assets for the buy and heart hold part of this puzzle for the 65 year old version of yourself. I know that sounds a little bit, uh, I guess, almost too far away to fathom, but when you're much older, your patience, the types of real estate you're going to want to hold, you'll want to, you're going to want to simplify your life. Uh, you be, won't want to potentially work. You won't have a second income. Uh, you don't have an income. So all of a sudden, you want to simplify your life to live off the real estate you put together now. So to answer the question of what type of investor you potentially want to be, well, I think the first and most important investor is the investor in your retirement. And along the way, you can then add other ideas to your investment layer. You could uh, certainly add the idea of being an armchair investor, uh, an Airbnb investor, uh, an ad value investor, you can add that stuff. But where the real layer of success in property investment is, is the idea that whatever you buy today, you've got to carry forward into your retirement and your retirement is critical to your life's journey. My first investment was a bit of a dud. Uh, I bought a property, it was in a much older building, an old red brick walk-up apartment complex. The location of the property was degrade. I bought at a period of time where I just wanted to get into the market. I was enthusiastic. I dreamt for quite a while to be a property owner. It was certainly something that I'd always wanted to achieve And really one of my first errors when it came to becoming a property investor was I bought a degrade asset because I really had a degrade budget 
and I put together enough to buy my first property. But if I just actually didn't buy that property, saved a little bit more money, I could have bought a much better asset at the time. My first property experience was a bit of a crash and burn experience, so to speak. Um, I bought a property. I was pretty proud of it, enthusiastic as I was. As soon as I sort of showed other people the property, they soon, uh, you know, corrected my bias towards this property by showing me things which I just said simply overlooked. Uh, When we looked at, for example, the driveway to the complex, tree roots were pulling up the concrete, Um, the balconies were rusted and falling apart, the internal property itself was in a pretty shocking state of repair. Uh, This wasn't liquor paint stuff, really. I'd bought myself a bit of a headache when it came to the idea that my marginal cost was going to fundamentally diminish. It was going to diminish because I'd have to throw more money into this property than what it was ever going to be worth um, in the short period of time. And as such, I soon realized my first real lesson in real estate was the idea of understanding the concept which is known as diminishing marginal return. Yes, the real estate I bought was suffering uh, the inability to be suitable for my 65-year-old self. Now, let me explain this a bit further. Obviously, with real estate, there is uh, the ability for real estate to grow and pay a return. But in this property's situation, the return would be null and void because for me to create an optimal level of return, I would have to spend money on capital costs, repairs, and ongoing problems to rectify that complex over a period of time. That money, which totaled Uh, around 25% of the assets worth was going to erode my return all the way up until my retirement. It's crazy as it sounds. What do I mean by that? Well, the property I bought was like $250,000, but to fix it, to um, fix the complex, you know, you would have had to inject about another $100,000 into the deal. Now, obviously, $100,000 is a large amount of money, and it's not going to be fixed by getting an extra $20 a week in rent. This is where I first discovered the concept, the law of diminishing marginal return. The law of diminishing marginal return in real estate is just the theory that in economics, that after you've reached an optimal period adding more to an investment is actually going to result in a loss, not a gain. And in real estate, we often call that overcapitalizing. So many property investors today overcapitalize. In fact, one of the best investments out in the market is a newly renovated property where someone else has overcapitalized. Quite often, 
Property investors think the best way to make money out of real estate is renovating. And of course, the opposite to that is buying someone who's renovated and overcapitalized because they're suffering the problem, the law of diminishing returns. No matter what rental return they get, they're never going to be able to get their money back. And of course, with my first investment property, this was the crux of the problem. I couldn't get my money out of the deal if I tried because of the current or you know the state of repair of the investment at that point in time. So I took a loss on that property. I sold it, um, basically made no money, uh, got out and had to restart my concept of being a property investor. And I guess it was a lesson. We all pay for lessons in one way, shape or form. And for me, that was a critical lesson of my property investment journey that we want to buy real estate whereby the law of diminishing marginal returns does not affect it for as long as possible. So real estate is real. It's a real building and real buildings can diminish in their value proposition to the market, throwing money uh, to chase the, uh, you know, to, to, to put a property to what it should be worth and not getting any form of extra benefit for that is a bad place to be as a property investor because no matter what money you throw at it, the return will not justify it. I.e., a $100,000 renovation for a $20 uplift in rent, it's not going to justify the cost of doing that. And obviously, sometimes a lot of property investors feel like, well, if they throw a $100,000 renovation at a property, maybe it's going to be worth $500,000. That's great if that is the case. But quite often, that is not the case for many property investors, i.e., the property I bought, I picked it up for $250,000. This was the the first property. It needed $100,000 worth of improvements. But that would have just brought it up to the median or midpoint of the market. And the median is just the midpoint of the market cap right? The marketplace. And again, like the fact that I was trapped, I bought something below the median, the middle of the market wants something better as a living standards to catch the middle of the market. I needed to spend a hundred thousand dollars. Um, but it wasn't going to add any more value. The property wasn't going to rise above the median market cap point or the midpoint of the market. So, Again, like this is where we break into two concepts as a property investor. One is you're an add value property investor. I do that through the property trifecta. I add value through rent. I add value by buying a project to undertake to buy, hold and sell. That's that's. Uh, through joint ventures and syndications. So what that fundamentally means is I'm trying to do a deal in the shortest period of time to add value. However, don't mix the two. Buy and hold, 
you do not want to suffer the law of diminishing marginal return. And this is where quite often today uh, renovations perhaps is a play on the English language. I really struggle with the word renovate or renovation at times because the English word renovate is to restore something uh, to make it basically revived or refreshed. So quite often a renovation actually is just something simple and cosmetic. You know, you've got new paint, uh, new gutters, uh, new flooring. These things are needed and necessarily for aging buildings, but don't necessarily transform a property's value proposition. And again, like this is the law of diminishing marginal return. So if you have a property and it's beaten up a bit and all you can do is give it a lick of paint, new carpet, uh, new lighting, new flooring, but then you've got other really non-value proposition items like new guttering, new roofing, new fencing, uh, your people aren't going to pay you a massive extra rental return just because you've changed the fence uh, to another fence. It doesn't work that way. And so what happens to a lot of property investors, and it has happened to me, is you basically carry a property which is dysfunctional for your 65-year-old self. And so we don't want to do that as a property investor. We want to pre-frame our investments to mirror the 65-year-old version of us. We do not want diminishing marginal return on our investment. And for the right properties, yes, you can transform them and trans, uh, go take them through a transformation. And this is really not a renovation. It is fundamentally a remodeling of the asset. Uh, you know, a full strip out, a full remake of a property, a home extension, adding a fifth bedroom. These are add value ideas that are often referred to as renovation, but really are a remodel or a transformation of an asset's value proposition. Adding an extra bedroom is going to create a value proposition for an asset. Painting a property is going to uh, make a property look better, but uh, not necessarily increase its overall return. In fact, it could be that the asset is diminishing your return. And we call this the law of diminishing marginal returns. We want to steer clear of the law of diminishing marginal returns. Now, remember the idea of your investment principle is what type of investor are you? You're an investor for your 65-year-old self. You're an investor for your retirement. And of course, if you buy a property today, which is 100 years old and not charming whatsoever, uh, and you retire in, you know, 30 years, you're going to carry a 130-year-old property into retirement. If a property was uh, created in 1975, today that property is 40, uh, yeah, what is that, 47 years old. Um, 
so, you know, if you're going to retire in 30 years, you're going to have a 77-year-old property. And quite what quite often happens in Australian real estate is Australian real estate, real estate looks tired after 25, 30 years in Australia. So what you are fundamentally holding is a contingent liability of the concept of diminishing marginal returns, i.e. the cost to keep, update, recreate, improve that property is going to erode your overall performance of your asset and affect your level of income into the future, into the now, or into retirement. The law of diminishing marginal returns is, again, something that I think happens to a lot of investors. It's happened to me when I bought cheap properties. I bought some properties for like $100,000 um, in and around uh, New South Wales, um, one was, I think, 140, you know, one was, I think, 120 from memory. They were cheap properties. I went down the road of, well, they're going to get a very good income. I was playing the game at that point of positive real estate. I was buying real estate, which was 120000 but getting $200 a week in rent. When you look at the return on paper, it looks impressive. You're like, wow, that's like a 9% yield. It was. But the law of diminishing marginal returns kicks in because, again, to fix a toilet in a $200,000 property or a $100,000 property is the same as a, a million-dollar property. So all of a sudden, one month's rent, which was $800, would go very, very quickly to the ongoing repairs and bills you would get to run that asset, the law of diminishing marginal return. So cheap real estate with cheap rent, even though at a percentage it can be a high yield percentage, if the dollar figure for the rent is still ridiculous, it diminishes your return. There is no return for the real estate. Now, again, a lot of property investors love the idea of even holding real estate for a short period of time. Again, I do this through projects, i.e. I identify the real estate as something to buy and sell. I do that generally through joint ventures and syndications. I do not buy a buy and hold property and then sell it because the law of diminishing marginal returns kicks in. Uh, we have a saying, buy well, never sell. Because as soon as you pay capital gains tax, your stamp duty, your holding costs, your sales fees, your marketing fees, your break cost fees, your solicitor fees, all of a sudden, the idea of making a gain and then selling out of that gain diminishes your result as a property investor, diminishing marginal return. Now, I've done podcasts on this stuff, uh, the eight risks and gaps to real estate. Again, it's all about the law of diminishing marginal returns. Insurance risk. Like if you have a property which is dilapidated, I can't say that word, or in a strange place or in a Gopnik town or in a flood zone, your 
insurance risk is going to skyrocket and it will kill your return. You will not have a rental return because of the risk your real estate poses to insurers, the law of diminishing marginal return. You've got to avoid this stuff. Operational costs, capital costs, the law of diminishing marginal return. Now, I teach there are eight gaps and risks. The four risks are insurance risk, liquidity risk. Liquidity risk is the law of diminishing marginal returns, i.e. your property is so bad, it has to sell below the midpoint of the marketplace because for someone to buy it, they're going to have to throw money into it to revive it to at least the midpoint of the market. And for them, they quite often do, if they're sensible and do the maths on that, your real estate becomes actually worth less, worth less than what it uh, it fundamentally should sell for because it is seen as a risk to the market. Operational cost risk, of course, again, like if your rent's not powering up and your costs are getting more and more expensive, you own a diminishing asset, the law of diminishing marginal returns, capital costs, big improvements. Then you've got things like gaps, the tenant gap, the market gap, disinvestment gap, and the location gap, or diminishing marginal return concepts. Now, diminishing marginal return is also as much about total return. Obviously, total return is just the idea that, you know, you could have a property market which performs quite continuously at around 7% per annum, but the rental return in that marketplace is much lower at 3%. So you take the 7 plus the 3, you're at a 10% total return. Now, that 10% total return may actually cost you $100 a week to service, i.e. you've got to chuck in 100 bucks a week to get a 7% return, uh, support a 3% yield against borrowing money at 4.5%. Now, we love being positively geared when possible, like I love it too, but not at the expense of getting the best return in the marketplace. Like I'd rather pay $100, $200 a week, which let's face it, today is two pieces and a can of Coke, uh, to buy better growth in the marketplace than, for example, buy a 6% return gross yield and get a 2% capital growth rate, i.e. 8% total return. So don't underestimate a lot of real estate is a diminishing performance piece of real estate. It's it's going through diminishing marginal return because it's not the right puzzle. Its yield is perhaps nice, but its growth rate too weak. Um, and right now, a lot of property investors, I see it right now, are uh, actually preferring the yield because they don't want the pain of paying $100 a week, which is two pizzas and three uh, Coca-Colas. Makes no sense to me. Now, I know some people are doing it tougher than others. I get that when it comes to what's happening with the cash rate at the moment. But I also know there is disposable income in most people's household. And if someone can't throw 100 or 200 bucks a week into a property to get 
a better return, then you've got to question yourself, are you actually doing the right thing or will you suffer the law of diminishing marginal return, i.e. you'll get no growth. So your overall return will diminish because you're chasing the wrong class of asset, diminishing marginal returns. And of course, diminishing marginal return can quite often be seen today inside the rental market. Now, I've seen properties that have skyrocketed like by $200 a week in rent. Uh, I'm managing some at the moment through our portfolio. We manage like a thousand properties. Some properties have skyrocketed. And the reason being is the human being production rate of person in that neighborhood, they are not uh, fundamentally challenged by the rise of inflation. However, some people, the rise of things costing more is impacting them. So when it comes to rent increases, they can only support an extra $10 a week. So your costs are going up to run your property, but your rent is not matching the cost that your property is is costing to go up. And so we get this law of diminishing returns around people as much as property. And of course, anyone who's listened to my podcast know knows I talk about a lot the idea of have and have not society. Where you invest where the have nots are, you run the risk of the law of diminishing returns. And of course, the final law of diminishing marginal returns, if you like, in my view, is the government itself. It is always trying to take uh, from the haves. And by the way, property investors are considered haves Today in society, there's like people with no properties and then there are people with, you know, property portfolios. You're considered a have by the government. And of course, the government is always trying to go, well, how do we stop these haves? How do we diminish their return? And of course, uh, a lot of that is the idea that your economic freedom is quite often being stolen. And of course... You know, you've just got to to structure your portfolio in a way which if something was to be stolen, you're going to be less impacted. And we do that through diversification, buying in different states to avoid land tax. Uh, the Queensland government tried to steal money from people who had properties in other states outside Queensland. Ridiculous concept the law of diminishing marginal returns. You've got to outplay what's coming your way. And sitting on the fence, by the way, is not a solution either because, again, like I don't know how many people have saved themselves wealthy when it comes to anything. So when you think about investing, it's kind of broken down into three quadrants. You can be a saver. No one saves themselves wealthy. That's why I can't understand why someone wouldn't throw in 100 bucks a week to support a superior return that doesn't make sense to me because saving 100 bucks a week ain't gonna make you wealthy you've got to invest then there are speculation assets things like gold crypto um, these are all speculating that the price someone else is going to pay more for that 
particular asset than you have, speculation assets. Then, of course, we have investing assets. Investing assets just provide both a return and also the opportunity for growth. And the two investing assets, if you like, that are very common are real estate investments and the share market investments. Share market, basically, you get a dividend and your share price can go up or it can go down. Real estate, you get rent or your real estate can go up or go down. Both the share market and the real estate market goes up more than it comes down, hence why it is not a speculation investment. But in real estate, if you remove the return, if you remove the income from an asset, it is a speculation asset. In other words, it is like as good as crypto. So you want to make sure that you do not diminish your return and invest with optimal return logic. Optimal return logic just basically says you're trying to protect your total return. You're trying to invest in the best capital growth, but not see a diminishing result on your overall result, the end of your investment uh, cycle, so to speak. Again, if your rental return is diminished because the cost to run the property is too much, the repairs and maintenance eat the property um, constantly, or you have a bill of $100,000, $300,000 that you have to pay, but you're avoiding it, your marginal return is going to catch up with you. And so I like to invest whereby I can fundamentally get both growth and a return and keep both. And again, like if you have no yield, you are going in and you're buying real estate. Remember, you're buying real estate for your retirement. This is the whole point of why you buy and hold. If you're not buying and holding, that's fine. You're buying and selling. So there's a different logic. But if you're actually holding the real estate for your retirement for a long period of time, then you need to mirror the right real estate to your 65-year-old self. Don't buy real estate for the 40-year-old or 30-year-old version of yourself. Buy real estate for the 65-year-old version of yourself. When I learned this lesson, it changed my economic dial when it came to buy and hold investments. I started to go, you know what? If I buy that property it is going to diminish over a period of time where I won't be able to justify throwing good money into that deal to prop it back up and I'll never get a return that is capable of giving me that money back, i.e. throwing $100,000 into something to get an extra $20 a week in rent. It's not going to provide the justification for doing that. So if you have uh, basically a return, but it gets whittled away to nothing, then you really own a speculation asset. And of course, that in itself is up for debate, whether that 
is the right way to do things. I don't think it is. So I prefer the law of optimal return or uh, the law of the best possible return. The law of the optimal return or increasing returns is basically also known as the law of diminishing costs. In other words, in real estate, diminishing costs can only be found in uh, properties which today are fully renovated, i.e. you've bought something and it's looking speaker span and it's going to last you 25, 30 years. Fully renovated properties, properties which you can renovate and get your money out of, i.e. you buy a property, you throw $100,000 at it, you get your money uh, uh, back out because the property goes up in value because of your renovation. Then you've got a property which is fully renovated and the law of diminishing cost kicks in. It's not going to cost you more to run over the 25-year period where you need to measure this methodology by. Or you can buy new properties or near new properties where you're just not going to have to spend a cent other than the odd washer, uh, the odd, you know, PowerPoint blows. You're not going to be able, you're not going to have to spend a cent for a long period of time. This protects your overall return. Now, as such, the law of increasing returns, also known as the law of diminishing costs, your cost to run is lower, then all of a sudden you can get the result out of this thing called buy and hold real estate. Now, this is a big debate out in the real estate market. You know, is it better to buy the worst house in the best street or the best house in the best street? Now, I'm a big believer you don't want to buy the worst house in the best street and suffer diminishing marginal returns for 30 years. What you want to do is you want to buy a property that actually becomes the worst house after 30 years. In other words, you buy an investment today, it's sound, it's going to return an optimal amount of money. You're not going to suffer any extra cost to run that property, but you're going to wake up in 30 years and the properties around you are just going to be better and better and better than yours. And what that's going to do is it means that you're going to get what we often refer to as zero overhead capital growth. You're going to get growth, but you're not going to throw more money after more money to uh, prop up the asset. Quite often, capital growth figures are a little bit distorted because you often see, um, you know, properties get really good resale amounts from where they were purchased to where they were sold. But quite often, what is not in the data set is the fact that that person spent $300,000 renovating that property. And of course, that has to come off the overall return, diminishing marginal uh, costs. And this is why if I was buying uh, a buy and hold property, I look at new, near new, or newly renovated. And I'd rather buy someone else's renovation work whereby they've overcapitalized than, for example, do a renovation myself and uh, fundamentally get the metrics wrong. So you want to buy 
the a good house in a good street and then wake up in 30 years owning the worst house in the best street. That's how the method works. That way you are not suffering the law of diminishing marginal return. So new new properties are good. Uh, new properties are good. Newly renovated properties are good. Why? Less maintenance, more tax effectiveness. We obviously live in a country where we're also given the ability to depreciate assets and claim what that looks like. And of course, for tenants, they also will pay more for a better looking property. 75% of all tenants recently surveyed in a realestate.com survey said they would pay more rent if the actual dwelling that was available in the market was of a better standard. And of course, we call this flight quality. If there's better quality for the rental market, they're going to pay for it because there is too many substandard pieces of real estate for them to choose and not enough good ones. So again, the law of optimal returns or the law of uh, diminishing cost is about less maintenance, more tax, and better overall rental returns. Now, remember that we're here to make money out of the real estate deal. We're here to choose a really good property in a great location. And of course, one of the best ways to get the law of optimal returns is to make sure you buy a great property to begin with. And of course, new, near, new, newly renovated or brand new, it's going to serve the purpose of making sure that you're not going to suffer the law of diminishing costs. Now, of course, some will argue that if you buy new, you're fundamentally uh, paying too much. And of course, for many new properties in the market, this is certainly the case. I love finding newer properties in the marketplace by using some metrics to make sure that they make mathematical sense and you're just not overpaying and therefore diminishing your marginal return. So I tend to look for uh, newer properties where affordability is running out. And so you really find what is known as the end of the investor footprint and the end of the first homeowner footprint. And we'll talk about what that looks like being price elasticity um, in a few moments. I also like buying new or near new properties in established suburbs where the land has run out. So I like going into old established neighborhoods and really the ability to resupply those old established neighborhoods. It's very, very difficult. This is where you can get a new stock, which again, suffers, you know, doesn't suffer from the law of diminishing marginal return. And of course, because you're in a very tightly held marketplace and you've got something new and shiny, the marketplace likes it. And you see this often with new projects coming to character suburbs or knockdown rebuilds, things like that, the market will pay more for it. So you're actually seeing that your return is being optimal, not diminished. And of course, uh, I like finding uh, 
newer properties, near new properties, newly renovated properties at the same price as older properties. Therefore, what you're finding is a good deal relative to uh, the secondhand marketplace. And of course, this allows you to avoid diminishing marginal cost over time. And so one metric which I think is the optimal way to buy real estate is to understand price elasticity of supply. Now, the simple way to understand that is there's more properties produced at $600,000 for the marketplace than there are $1.8 million properties produced. Obviously, there's more buyers at $600,000 than there is $1.8 million. However, if you can work out the sweet metric between the two, you find what is known as what is affordable to the market and undersupplied, and we call that um, we call that the gap. And that gap is what we look for: the affordable yet livable supply gap. So, where is the market elasticity of where there is more buyers? but less property. Price elasticity of supply is the percentage change in supply versus the percentage change in price, a measurement that is critical. So what I found over the years, one of the best places to invest is where you can just buy where first home buyers and investors are kind of maxed out uh, but there's still stock in that uh, section of the market. So today, you know, most first home buyers and investors tap out at about $800,000. So if you're buying at $700,000, it's not a bad playbook because what happens is all of a sudden the market uh, can't be fed stock in that $800,000 price range because people won't buy it. There is no market. But what does that do when there is no stock being produced in a certain price point? It means anyone shopping in that price point has no stock to choose. Of course, what we see is an optimal rate of return. And of course, I think that's one of the best methodologies to buy real estate today is to try and find out where the groups of real estate are changing, the elasticity of the market's changing. And uh, quite often, I tend to prefer where the investors and the first home buyers are at their kind of threshold because I know the next port of call for that asset is an upgrader. Someone choosing to upgrade into that asset will push the price. Now, quite often inside of real estate, we do also talk about the idea of buying, renovating, and recycling equity, a brewer investor, as it's commonly known. Um, now, just understand, again, when we're choosing a property to buy, um, and if it's got a lot of capital costs associated to it, if we're throwing good money into a deal and we can't get that money out, 
uh, that's going to diminish our overall result for the return of the asset. Remember the first property I bought, the problem with it, with it was, despite buying the property, even if I throw $100,000 at it, I wouldn't even have got that $100,000 back uh, in capital growth. It would have just been like throwing money in the bin. Yes, the property would have been better. Yes, it would have slightly gone up in value. My $250,000 property would have been worth $320,000, but it would have cost me $100,000 to do that. So quite often when you're thinking about this stuff, you've got to have a buying rule. And we use the 70% rule as the break-even rule. So what does that mean? So let's say we're looking at a $900,000 property, but it needs $100,000 worth of work. So it's a million dollar piece of real estate for us to buy that property. Yes, we can get a loan on the $900,000. We're going to have to throw in $100,000 cash into that property to uh, improve its overall return. So it doesn't suffer a marginal return as we own the real estate, i.e., we're buying the $900,000 property. We're using an extra $100,000 cash to prop up the property's look and feel and then have 25 years before we even have to worry about the property again. What do we have to pay for that property? So it's a million dollars, right? 900000 plus 100000 is a million dollars. So this is where rule 70 comes into play, 70% rule i.e. for that $1 million investment, we have to buy that property at $700,000. Remember, it's on the market for $900. We're going to have to pay $700 because we're going to throw in an extra $100. Why? Because of the gearing point. Generally, you're capable of recycling equity at 80%. So obviously, 80% of a million is $800. less the $700,000 we paid plus the $100,000 improvement um, of money means we can get our $100,000 back. And of course, again, for project investors, they obviously want to surpass what that looks like. I do that through the property trifecta through doing joint ventures. I'll look at a deal like that, but I want to make more because I want to return and flip the property, sell the property. I do that through land subdivisions. But again, the purpose of understanding this rule is to understand how difficult that proposition actually is. How many people today have a property worth 900 that would sell it to you for 700? It's possible, but it's hard, it's clunky. And this is why so many people overcapitalize when it comes to that real estate idea. Now, the law of optimal returns says you should do that deal if you could not only get your money back, the renovation cost back, but if you can get more than the renovation cost back, Perhaps, uh, for example, if the property went on to be worth 1.1 million instead of 1 million, well, at 80%, you're fundamentally getting $180,000 back. So you're getting your original $100,000 renovation cost back plus 80 grand. So again, 
as you can see, a lot of it actually comes down to the buying part. Quite often, renovating or remodeling, if you like, can make money, but it can't make money unless you buy the property well. And this is where people who are good buyers actually can end up adding transformation effect to real estate because the algorithm, if you like, is 50% buying and 50% transformation. It's not 100% transformation. And of course, this is where most property investors go wrong. They pick up a property, they add value to it, the market corrects on them, then the real estate actually uh, goes down in value and then they're in an overcapitalized place. So again, what I prefer, it's just my logic. I like new, near new, newly renovated properties because they've already got the optimal return built in and I do not need to put more money into them. Back to that theory, I would prefer to put $100,000 into a second deal than just renovate something which I can just buy in the marketplace by using my mouth rather than using my cash. So again, like when we look at this stuff, we want optimal returns. And of course, one of the best ways to create optimal returns is that real estate is about people as much as it is about property. The law of increasing returns is about the production rate of people. People have the ability to produce. Some produce more than others. If you buy in a neighborhood where the production rate is higher of economic output, you're going to get more output on your investment. It's basically the way it works. And of course, uh, a lot of that output, if you like, can go into the increasing nature of rental returns, which again, makes for a better overall investment. Other optimal ideas for increasing your overall return so you do not suffer marginal return syndrome is location. We talk about this all the time. Location is important. It's probably the most important thing for your property investment. A property near the beach is going to get an overall better return than a property on a main road. It's just the way it works. They may be both for sale on the same weekend. One's going to perform better than the other. The law of optimal returns. The law of optimal returns also is that you need to be invested. Now, a lot of people sit out of the market until the market takes off. But there is a theory in real estate known as 90-day theory, basically stating that if you miss the first quarter of economic growth of a boom, you're going to miss a huge, huge amount of the overall return and suffer diminishing, diminishing marginal uh, syndrome. So in other words, like if you can remember the boom that recently happened, if you were not invested between August 2020 and really December 2020, you potentially missed around $100,000 on an average investment property's worth going up. That 90-day period, if you like, was critical to the overall return. And of course, for many people, they were not ready to invest 
or they were not invested or they sat out from investing when they should have. They missed the 90-day theory and therefore missed the optimum period for their real estate to perform. The law of increasing returns says that you need to be invested, not uh, not invested. And again, like that's kind of counterintuitive at times to go, well, today, uh, you know, like the market's not going to go up. So like, why would I be invested? But the point is, when the market goes up, nobody knows. And if that period of opportunity comes, it can happen within 90 days that a property goes up 20%. We were seeing properties worth $1 million in August 2020. By December 2020, 90 days later, they were worth $1.4 million. 90-day theory, you need to be invested. I think the other major thing which creates optimal returns for everyone is your network becomes your net worth, right? So just make sure you're taking advice from the right people, hanging out with the right human beings because, again, like just understand you've got to arm yourself with the best education in the market. Don't suffer marginal return loss on your assets, buy real estate that can go the distance. My tip to you, as per the start of the show, my number one rule is buy for the 65-year-old version of you, not the 35-year-old version of you. Uh, Make sure you're buying for your retirement and what that looks like so that you can optimize the time that you're not at work and you're not having another income source. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you next time as we talk more real estate. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor,